The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. MG is back. And it's electric. The MG ZS EV. From just €28,995, the truly affordable, family-friendly electric range. Go to mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello there, and you're very welcome to this special Christmas edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is that time of year when we ask you, our listeners, to set the agenda for the show by sending in questions, which we try as hard as possible to answer as honestly as possible. At least that is the general idea. Uh, Let's see how it goes anyway. It hopefully won't come as a surprise to you to learn that we did record this podcast a few days before Christmas, so do bear that in mind if any issue we discuss has been overtaken by events. Although, interestingly, we received no questions at all directly about this year's pandemic. Anyway, before we do get going, I want to draw your attention to the Irish Times' upcoming Winter Nights Festival, which features a number of in-depth discussions between Irish Times journalists and significant public figures, everybody from Edna O'Brien to Darrow O'Brien and from Nicola Sturgeon to Micheál Martin. The festival is going to run online from January the 25th to the 29th and tickets are €50 or €25 for Irish Times subscribers. So just go to irishtimes.com slash winternights to find out more. Now, joining me today are Pat Leahy, Harry McGee, Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones. God rest ye all. Usually we would be in the Irish Times studio raising a glass of something and even nibbling on a mince pie if our producer Declan's budget stretched to it. But not this year. I haven't actually seen any of you in the flesh for 10 months now, I think. Uh, We're going to go straight to our first question. It comes from John Feeney and he asks for a rundown on the best performing rookie TDs. Going to throw this one to all of you, but first to you, Jen. I knew you were going to come to me first on that I was like don't come to me first I can't think of anybody <laughs> um, rookie TDs okay let me think off the top of my head TDs who I think perform well despite against the odds despite what people said in the beginning I think actually Norma Foley has kind of pulled it together a little bit I think in the beginning um, she got a lot of flack because she was a first time TD first time minister she was going into a portfolio at a time when uh, we had COVID restrictions coming in and all these questions around whether the schools be open whether they would reopen and I think one of the big uh, credits to the government this year has been that they got the schools open and that they kept the schools open. So I'm going to give that one to Norma Foley. OK. Um, Harry McGee? For me, um, I think um, Holly Cairns of the Social Democrats has been very uh, impressive, as has Jennifer Carl McNeil of Fine Gael. Uh, I've been impressed by Claire Curran of uh, Sinn Féin, uh, Brian Ledden of the Greens, um, on the Fianna Fáil side, uh, Paddy O'Sullivan, I think, has been very uh, good. Uh, there have been a couple of senators who I think have been very good as new senators. Rebecca Moynihan uh, of Labour and Maria Sherlock of, La- of Labour have both uh, come uh, along with some very good pieces of uh, legislation. Um, I also think that um, uh, Mairead Farrell of Sinn Féin has been uh, very uh, impressive. She's from Galway West. And she has been uh, the public expenditure spokesperson for the party and has done very well. Okay, Jack. 
I'd like to point out that Harry has named all of them. <laughs> that's, that's a little unfair on the rest of us. He does tend to do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say Jennifer Car- Carol McNeil and and Holly Cairns both have been good. Um, you know who's been good actually? Matt Matt Carthy has not been bad, and 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 it's kind of almost to, a little bit of a surprise to think of him as a first time TD because he was knocking around in, in Europe for so long. But he's he's performed pretty well in the agriculture brief for for Sinn Fein and has been uh, an effective kind of thorn in the side for for the government. Uh, he's a good competent media performer, uh, does well at committees and so on. So um, just partially by virtue of the fact that he's good, and partially by virtue of the fact that Harry hasn't hasn't mentioned him, I'll go for Matt Carthy. Okay. Pat, you're bringing up the rear here. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think the outstanding UTD is probably Holly Kearns. You know, she's in a small party. Um, she's done really well to get noticed. All of her um, uh, all of her interventions uh, have been pretty well judged. She's used social media uh, very well. So I would say she's probably um, probably the outstanding of the new TTs. Uh, also, I'd go along with Harry saying Mairead Farrell has really impressed me. Also, I've looked at her at a few committees where she's kind of Pierce Doherty's under study um uh, his his public expenditure understudy to his um uh to his finance brief and uh she's been very impressive and one other new td on this occasion though he was previously um he was previously a td and lost his seat is the independent michael mcnamara who was formerly a labor td from uh from claire who chaired the covid committee and i thought was uh did a good job uh did a good good job with that and his interventions in it all are generally pretty well judged so now I'm going to move on to a kind of a, a number of questions. And we have quite a few of what you might call inside baseball questions. And I think maybe that's not surprising given our listenership. They're interested in what goes on under the hood of politics and indeed of the coverage of politics. So we're going to take a few of those now. The first one comes from Connor Kelly. Hello, my name is Connor Kelly. I'm a research assistant at UCL and a PhD student at Birkbeck College in London. I really love the podcast. I listen to it every week. Uh, and I'm just wondering... Do the panel know if the podcast has much of an impact on the sort of Leinster House bubble? Has any famous fans, TDs, senators or ministers ever said that they listen to the podcast? And do you know what influence it has on debate amongst politicians themselves? Mm, Jennifer, what sort of uh, feedback do you get from uh, from the other side of the fence? Um, does it have an impact on the bubble? But I think the key word here is bubble, you know, because it is a bubble in Leinster House and like we're in it a lot of the time and it's important to remember that. Um, most of the feedback I get from politicians about the podcast is people giving out. Usually someone's annoyed that I've said something about something they said, they said they said it differently or something like that. Or, or once I actually said what some uh, a Fianna Fáil politician had said in a parliamentary party meeting that they got in touch with me to say, yes, I said that, but I also said 10 other things. Maybe next time you're on the podcast, you could go through this list of 10 things, uh, which obviously never happened and, and wouldn't happen. So no, honest to God, the most, of the most of the reaction I get is just politicians griping at me about things that were said or like different analysis, but in a good natured way, to be fair. Um, yeah, I don't really know how many politicians listen to the podcast, but I'd like to think plenty. What do you think, Pat? Do, do people do listen to the podcast, not just the politicians, but maybe their, uh, their assistants as well? I think it's amazingly influential, Hugh, principally due to the expert expert chairing of debates by yourself. Um, uh, lots of people around Leinster House, around the bubble, listen uh, listen to it. They often mention it to me. And actually, uh, I suppose, broader point about changing media habits there. I think a lot of people who don't necessarily have the time to be reading every scrap of political coverage in the papers, um, 
use the podcast as a way of uh, of a way of catching up. And I suppose that's something we've talked about ourselves as a function of the podcast. Sometimes at the end of the week to do uh, to do a catch up podcast. But in, in a, to give a straight answer to what I assume is a straight uh, a straight question, yeah, I think lots of people around Leinster House listen to it would be rather worrying if they didn't, frankly. Do you agree, Harry? You, you get certain feedback. I mean, I don't know which ministers listen to it, but I do know that uh, most advisors listen to it and listen to it very closely. And I, I think uh, the fact that that we have a big listenership in the general population as well uh, suggests that it is very uh, uh, closely listened to uh, within Leinster House. I haven't, I must say, I haven't got all that much feedback in relation to the podcast, uh, but that's not surprising. We don't really get all that much feedback unless we have uh, made some transgression or kind of stepped over the bound. But we do get people uh, from time to time who say that they follow it religiously. And I know of at least two senators that I can think of off the top of my head, plus a, a handful of TDs who tell you that they listen to it all the, all the time. So, yes, I think it's, it's closely listened to. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you how many, but I, I know that, that, that a lot do listen to it and follow it very closely and hopefully enjoy it as well. I have another very interesting question here from possibly a thorny one as well. You never know. Let's see how it goes from Podrick Stack. Uh, he asks the following. I wonder what political parties and organisations members of the panel have been involved with in the past. Is it a bit odd for people who are so keenly interested in the political process in Ireland not to have been involved in political organisations at any stage? So that's a two-part question, Pat. Go to you first. Uh... Well, I've never been involved in a political party. Um, I have uh, friends, I think, in all of the parties, though I suppose most of my friends are probably in none of the parties. Um, but I I suppose the listener won't be surprised to hear that I, and I assume all of us, have been interested in politics for many, for, since I was a teenager, um, uh, I suppose, um, and uh, I suppose there's a broader point, Hugh, about uh, which we've touched on in these sort of sessions before, which is about the, you know, the political views of our journalists, because I'm sure that, you know, we, we all have views on issues and individual parties. And I think that that is something that we are aware of. And, uh, and that we work hard to ensure that it doesn't influence our coverage in that we strive to cover all the parties. Um, obviously, some are of greater interest to us than others because they are bigger and more important or they're in government or they might be in government. And uh, uh, but as to the general point, which I don't know, maybe covered in further uh, in further questions about our own political views, um, I, I, I think that a we're aware that they may colour our coverage but we are conscious of not letting them do so. And we probably will come to that because there are a couple more questions along those lines. But Jennifer, are we ever in a political party? No, never in a political party. Don't have any previous links to any political party. And actually, something that people probably don't know about me is that um, I generally shy away from voting in general elections because I actually feel a bit uncomfortable about even going down the line of thinking about even my local politician who I'd feel comfortable with. Like I do vote in... Um, you know, referendums, uh, referenda, or referendums. Um, but generally, I, I do steer away from it for that very reason. That's probably a bit lame of me, and I'm sure plenty of people think that's totally unnecessary, but that's how seriously I take that. And um, 
I'm not from a political family. My family were never really interested in politics. It's a mystery to them that I'm a political journalist. They, they don't understand why. They just look at me and think there's something wrong. But um, no, no links to, to politics. But I do think that an interesting point is raised, like Pat said, about um, our perceived affiliations or our perceived bias. And I think it's absolutely fair enough that journalists are asked, you know, is there a perceived bias? What I don't think is fair enough is the assumption that we're all kind of, if you write a series of negative articles about any party, whether it's Fine Gael, whether it's Sinn Féin or whatever, especially on social media, the presumption is just that you are, you know, like a government shill uh, or that you're hiding your implicit bias. I mean, the fact is, I, I don't think I'd vote for I don't. But if, if I was told you to sit down now and vote for someone, I don't think I'd vote for any of them. So... Yeah. And I've seen you've had some direct experience of that actually um, over the last um, the last while. I just very briefly want to get through this thing uh, about the parties. Harry, were you ever in a political party? No, I've never been a member of a political party, even though I have been accused of being a member and fellow traveller of every conceivable uh, political. Uh, party and also of being uh, regularly of being an establishment uh, stoogie. Um, you know, uh, uh, and in a way, uh, there's a bit of truth in that because I think that um, you, you carry a little bit of uh, every party with you. There are some times when you think that a particular party is doing particularly well and you might agree uh, with its direction or its policies. And sometimes uh, you take a, a dislike to something that another political party is doing. You tend to be a bit of a magpie in terms of taking a little piece from each of the party. And I think the observation I'd make in relation to that is you can't really ignore your own human prejudices and the way that they colour uh, your view of the world. You have to be able to recognise those, those human weaknesses. Uh, I think it's impossible to completely eradicate them. So what you have to do is you have to try to be as objective and fair-minded and and disinterested as you possibly uh, can be uh, to try and get balance in and uh, if an assertion or a claim is made and to give people a right of uh, reply. So really to try and not infect your reporting uh, with your own boring life and your own predictable uh, prejudices. So that's the kind of the high bar uh, to which I aspire uh, I, and one that I don't come very near all of the time. Jack, ever in a party? Never in a party, no, but um, my, my wife makes fun of me because my family are, are political and, and, and obsessively nerdishly so, to the point that when we were on long car journeys when we were kids, we used to have pop quizzes of cabinet ministers. <laughs> that's, how, that's how incredibly sad we were. Um, so it'd be kind of, you know, driving to Cork or something like that. Who is the Minister for Foreign Affairs? Uh, Dick Spring! One point. <laughs> but we were all losers, really. <laughs> um, the, I, think, I, think, I think the points I've made were really good. I think that Harry's right, that, you know, it, it's kind of... Uh, it's it's really unrealistic to pretend that that bias doesn't exist, even if even if you're not aware of it, um, it exists on a kind of cognitive le- cognitive level. So you know you have to um, make every effort to correct for that, uh, and the best way to do that to approach that is is through through fair mindedness. You know, and, and that's that has to be one of the kind of one of the poles of how you go about doing your job every day. 
I'm, I'm, I'm taken aback to discover that I'm the only person who was ever a member of a political party. And that was a very, very long time ago in my teenage years when I was briefly a member of the long defunct now uh, Socialist Labour Party, uh, led by Noel Brown and also for a while by Jim Cammy. Uh, but I've moved on in all kinds of different directions since. I was afraid you were going to say that you were a member of Clan Republic too. Yeah, I'm almost that old, Pat, but thanks, uh, thanks for that. I want to go to another question. Now, this question is from Eta Kelly. And Jennifer, I'm not going to put this question to you at least first, uh, but for reasons which will now become obvious. Jack, why are there so few women reporting on politics across all platforms? You know, we're going we're gonna to get terrible feedback for putting this to a man first. Um, I, I think that, uh, first of all, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. There are, there are uh, quite a few uh, female colleagues in, in the press gallery um, and excellent colleagues at that. Uh, I think that one of the, like, the reasons why you might see female participation perhaps fade um as time goes on aren't unique to to politics i think that you know uh as as women kind of you know like you know enter enter into uh childbearing age and so on um workplaces in general and that includes leinster house and newspapers and radio stations and tv stations uh, are not well adopted uh, adapted to 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 catering for that um, and then i think on top of that and, and this is something that affects uh men who have children as well is that you know the the uh the 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 working demands of covering politics are are fairly intense you know it 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 is not unusual to to start extremely early and and finish extremely late and be extremely busy in between all those hours that that that, that come you know so so like balancing that with a family life and family commitments is very difficult and and I do think that you know it's it would be it would be you know trite or it would be unrealistic to say that there's not a fair degree of, of, you know, ingrained unconscious bias. We were talking about unconscious bias in terms of covering politics, but in, there is unconscious bias and, and, and unconscious sexism within, uh, within politics and um, within all those institutions that I mentioned above, you know. So, so I think all those factors play into it as well. Jennifer? Well, recently I saw a picture of the Leinster House Press Gallery um, from a good while ago. And it was 95% men. There were some honourable, notable exceptions, uh, female political journalists amongst them. And I do think that over the years that has changed. We do have more female um, uh, journalists reporting on politics across all the platforms, whether it be in newspapers or whether it be on TV. I mean, from my own perspective, I started working in journalism 13 years ago and over those years, I found the areas that people would prefer that I worked in in different papers were areas like showbiz or education or health. And they were kind of areas that maybe editors felt that I fit, previous editors felt that I fit more naturally into and, and, and my female colleagues too. Um, I always wanted to be a political journalist. I was just waiting for the, the opening to come up and, and for the opportunity. And I'm glad that happened. But when I joined Leinster House then, um, I did notice that... Uh, my male colleagues were taken more seriously when they asked questions, whether that be about Brexit or whether that be about anything. Um, but I, I saw it and I saw times when I'd be putting in a, a call to maybe a minister or maybe an advisor and sit beside, literally, literally sit beside a male colleague, maybe from a different newspaper who put in the same query and call and they would hear back before I would. Maybe some of that was because I was newer, but I do think some of that was almost an unconscious bias on their part to take queries and questions from male journalists 
more seriously um you know and and I don't really know what the answer to that is I definitely think some of the problem tiny bit of the problem I think is definitely like Jack said the really unsociable hours um but I'm a female journalist I and in fairness I don't have kids but I you know I covered I covered just as well I hope as as my male colleagues and in other papers too and the stress I mean like the stress of the job so I'm not so sure if that's the biggest thing I think the biggest thing is a uh it's, it's almost like this was the way it was always done. It's a cultural thing. Um, but I think it's changing and I'm really glad that it is. Pat, finally, I mean, you're, I mean, you've been in a senior management position across more than one newspaper now. So, I mean, you're in a position on the, the, other, the other side of the desk, I suppose, the interview desk, for example, to, to have a perspective on this. Yeah, I'd actually be interested in, in, in looking at what the gender breakdown is amongst um, the political correspondents in Leinster Houses at the moment. I, I mean, the, the guys can uh, correct me on this, uh, but I, I, I would say it's probably not far off 40% um, female 30, 40%. Anyway, I, I'm, as I say, if I was a woman, maybe I'd be more aware of it. I do remember that when I started uh, reporting from Leinster House for the Sunday Business Post, um, which was, I'm afraid, 18 years ago, um, that many of the most prominent political correspondents then, people like Geraldine Kennedy, Muel Muratainen, Emily O'Reilly, Una Claffey, they were uh, were all were all women, um, and uh, uh, so I, I think that women and very talented women political correspondents have always been part of the picture in uh, in in Leinster House. The fact that they experienced uh, sometimes very sexist treatment down there, I think, will survive or surprise nobody, and has been fairly well documented. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, I very much agree with what, you know, uh, Jennifer and Jack say about the antisocial hours, which would put off um, not just women, but any, uh, any anyone in their right mind, um, frankly, because sometimes the, uh, you know, sometimes the, the, the hours, I'm, you know, I'm not complaining. Nobody's forcing us uh, to do it. And we are, after all, covering the politicians who probably work longer hours uh, than uh, than than we do. But um, but yeah, I think the antisocial hours are probably a reason why uh, why women, women and other types of people uh, tend to not stay in uh, in Leinster House um, for for uh, a very long time. Okay, we're going to we're going to turn to the subject of the present government now. We have a few questions in on that. The first one is from Brian Flaherty. Hi, this is Brian Flaherty from just outside Boston. Uh, as an American, I've been interested to see how Leo Vracker has seems to be a pretty active tonista, uh, very outspoken and like I know he he is part of the government, but he's also not the Taoiseach. And I'm curious, has there ever been a time in Irish history when the tonista was from a different party than the Taoiseach uh, and was so active politically. Brian, thanks very much for that question. And it's really great to have listeners, you know, listening in from around the world and hopefully we're educating you a bit about Irish politics. It's uh, it is the case that there have been some very political tonishes in the past. But this, Harry, is a particular sort of political tonish that we haven't seen before. That's true. Uh, he, he belongs to to possibly the uh 
the biggest uh, second party in government almost in the history of the state. I know Labour uh, were big in 2011, but they were comparatively smaller in comparison to Fine Gael, which was almost twice its its size. So I congratulate Brian in the first instance on his very good pronunciation of Tónishta, and hopefully he will be able to get his tongue and mouth around words like Can Corlia and Cahirlach of the Shannad. But um, he, he makes a, a good point. I think what, what we're seeing is um, uh, Leo Varadkar uh, uh, acting as a, a political leader and I think he's trying to redefine the Tawnish to role as a leadership role, uh, not so much as second in command, but um, uh, 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 first amongst equals, really, or second amongst uh, equals, maybe trying to replicate the relationship that Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster have in the North, where there's deputy ministers, first minister and deputy first minister, uh, but they have almost equal billing. In terms of the historical context, we have uh, seen Tawnishti from other parties in the past who have tried to assert themselves quite strongly. In more recent history, of course, there's been the Labour Party in 2011, first Eamon Gilmore, uh, we can never forget that uh, amazing slogan, Gilmore for Taoiseach. Uh, and when Gilmore was Tawnishti, he did try to assert himself. I think Joan Burton, actually, when she carried the baton afterwards, uh, tried to assert herself even more with mixed results. I think if you go back as well uh, to the progressive Democrats, um, we see another example of that. And the one that comes to mind for me in particular was when Michael McDool uh, was uh, Tawnishta in the run-up to the 2007 election. He tried really hard to assert himself and to make himself out as some kind of alternative uh, leader in, in some instances uh, to Bertie Ahern. But unfortunately, uh, that experiment had a very unhappy ending, uh, both for the PDs and Michael McDool in the sense that they went into the election uh, with eight seats and they merged with two seats. And uh, Michael McDool, unfortunately for him, uh, lost his seat. But I think um, the observation is a, is, a, is a good one. I think Leo Varadkar is defining the role of Tawnishta in a very different way uh, than we've seen before. And of course, we have this notion of rotating Taoiseach as well. So there is a kind of a sense uh, that he is minding his own party. Uh, that he's setting himself out as a real Taoiseach or as an alternative Taoiseach. And uh, in the first few months, certainly, that experiment worked very well for him. I'm not sure if it will continue to work well uh, in the future. And and on that on that very subject, Jack, we have another question in. It comes from Aidan O'Hare, and he he writes uh, uh, a speculative ask, but a speculative what if scenario for you to consider. How different would the last six months have been if Leo's turn at rotating rotating Taoiseach had come first? I think that a lot of the difficulties that uh, Fianna Fáil have encountered in terms of polling might have accrued to uh, Leo Varadkar and to Fine Gael. Um, I think that inevitably he left on the crest of a wave. Uh, he left as we were opening up the economy after locking down COVID and people were seeing each other again and socialising again. And we had come through the first wave in not altogether terrible shape. And obviously... He and Fine Gael were incredibly buoyant in the polls after that. Um, and, and the next phase was always going to be significantly more difficult because even though we kind of hoped that we might be able to keep the foot on the throat of COVID, I think that realistically that was never actually going to happen. 
Um, and the next administration, uh, whoever led it, was always going to be making more difficult calls and, and more unpopular calls. Um, and, and the kind of social and political consensus that had underpinned the first phase of the reaction to uh, to COVID was, was going to disintegrate a little bit. So I think that he would not be as popular now um, as he as he is if he had been Taoiseach. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of what things have been different, like from a policy point of view, uh, I would imagine that you know he he's he is more in the kind of laissez-faire mold and and more kind of you know in favor of keeping keeping stuff open. But ultimately, when it comes to the big policy moves, they have been kind of formed by by consensus around the cabinet table and at the the COVID subcommittee and other important government groups. So I don't think there would have been any kind of massive divergences or differences. I think that the main the main difference would be that you know he may not be as, as popular had he been in in the, in the hot seat, and I think that it's interesting as well because you know the, the the next couple of years are going to be very difficult, and the the first crack of the whip is I think almost certainly going to have the more difficult share of the next uh, of of the of the 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 the, the two Tishi that are going to serve in the lifetime of this government, um, and and by the time he comes back into the into into the the role. You know, COVID will hopefully be a distant memory. Brexit will hopefully be squared away, and 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 the problems will not be as kind of fundamental. And 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 you know, we maybe even be experiencing you know some kind of, of of I don't want to say economic boom, but certainly a kind of prolonged growth period as we come out of 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 uh, the current the current difficulties. And and that will be wind in the sails of whoever is leading the country going into the next election, whenever that is. And Pat, maybe in addressing that question, you could also address this one related from Crawford Smith, who's a regular listener from Scotland. Crawford says this, you mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the podcast about how Fine Gael's poor performance at the election has never really been examined inside or outside the party. It's bounced back in the polls following the caretaker government's handling of the crisis and with Fianna Fáil currently the face of the government. But given that bad election performance, the drama surrounding Leo Varadkar's leaking of information that was in the media and suggestions that the rise in the polls may only be temporary, how secure would you say Leo Varadkar's leadership of Fine Gael actually is? Well, I'd say it's pretty secure um, for now, which is, I suppose, all one can ever say uh, in uh, in politics. I don't see any threat to Leo Varadkar's leadership coming from a challenge from either another minister or from his backbenches. And there is certainly no sense that the party is restive in the way that Michal Martin's party is certainly restive. I mean, Michal Martin has always been slightly apart from his parliamentary party, has always been pushing his parliamentary party in directions that many of them were uncomfortable with. Um, But it seems to me that in recent months, not just because of the sackings from or the resignations from uh, from cabinet, but because also of the many people who were extremely and vocally disappointed uh, at not getting promoted to ministerial jobs upon the formation of the government, that Michal Martin has uh, an internal opposition within his own parliamentary party that is uh, more vocal and more dangerous to him than anything previously. That having been said, I realise that the question was uh, about Fine Gael and particularly about the um, uh, the uh, leadership of Leo Varadkar. 
whilst I think there is no danger of a challenge to uh, Leo Varadkar, I think that some of his TDs have quietly questioned his judgment in recent months. I think on the question of the leaks, the the the, the leak controversy uh, about the GP's uh, document, about the appointment of Seamus Wolf, which controversy, as Harry was reporting this morning, continues to uh, to fester. Uh, I think on one or two other things that there have been questions about Leo Varadkar's judgment, not about his leadership, but about his judgment that I haven't heard in the party before. And the background against which they are set is the knowledge in Fine Gael that the election campaign and the attempt to sell Varadkar to the uh, uh, to the voters last February didn't work at all, at all. It flopped. The Varadkar project or the project to present Varadkar to the voters flopped. And that hasn't uh, been forgotten by many people in the party. It's been pushed to the background because the caretaker administration that ran from February to June was seen as handling the first phase very well. But people in Fine Gael haven't forgotten that the election campaign was a disaster and a fair bit of the credit or blame for that, uh, I think, will ultimately be laid at the door of the of the leader. Um, just a last question on the two large government parties to you, um, Jen. Um, at Irish Agreement on Twitter, I think this question might have come directly to you on Twitter. With the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil votes share dropping, will the party leaders ever push for a merger? Or will the Fine Gael leaders just wait for Fianna Fáil to just collapse? And if so, where will that Fianna Fáil membership go? Yeah, I saw that question. It's a really interesting question. And the answer is, I actually don't know. Um, I'd be lying if I said I, I did. Um, I think that if you look at where we were at at the start of the year before the election and the really strong protestations, that, you know, the protests, that TDs in both parties made that they would never, ever go into a coalition government uh, with the other. Um, and, you know, they, I, I remember sitting at one of the Fianna Fáil press conferences and asking Jim O'Callaghan and Dara O'Brien, I think it was, you know, is there really no circumstance at all, notwithstanding whatever happens, that you will not go into a coalition agreement with Fine Gael? And they both said, no, absolutely not. Now, of course, they're the promises that are made during a general election campaign, and a lot of us know that it's not always necessarily, in fact, often not what happens afterwards. Um, so it, what I'm the point I'm trying to make is that even if you think to yourself, you just could not imagine these th- this happening, it probably could happen. And I think the parties are closer in ideology to each other than they like to admit. Um, and I think the fact that they actually have bedded in relatively well over the last few weeks in particular um, this kind of uh, there's definitely I don't know maybe trust is overstating it but there's a, a growing allegiance between the two and how they operate shows that perhaps there wasn't a world difference between the two of them all along perhaps it's more than just a one-time coalition agreement to keep Sinn Féin out maybe it is a long-term thing maybe it would make sense for the parties you know um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen I don't see it happening anytime soon I think they really do want to, to hold on to their own identities but if in the end it comes down to a question of political survival, then yeah, I think it could happen. 
And that is it for the first instalment of our Ask Me Anything Christmas special. We're going to be back with part two in a few days' time, so keep an eye on your feed. But until then, thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and remember that you can sign up for a subscription to the Irish Times at irishtimes.com slash inside. And if you use that particular address, irishtimes.com slash inside, they will know that we sent you there, which might help us in our efforts to keep making this podcast just a little bit better into the year to come. So if you're not already a subscriber, we really would be delighted if you consider doing that now. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're always really pleased to hear from you. You just mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. So until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 